You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Um, you know, before we get to the passage this morning we're going to talk through, man, this weekend I was saddened to hear uh, the passing of uh, Pastor Tim Keller, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, a uh, great man of God, he ran his race well, uh, was the uh, crea- or the, the pastor that started Redeemer Presbyterian there in Manhattan, and so my encouragement is this, if you've never read one of his books, and he has written numerous books, uh, I want to encourage you this summer to pick one of those up or download it and uh, read one this summer uh, from him. He's written a lot of books. Uh, probably the most popular uh, was called The Reason for God, but he's written a great book on marriage, the meaning of marriage. Uh, he's written books on prayer, uh, fear, and hope. And so there's a plethora of information out there. And so, man, that would be my encouragement this summer. Pick up a Tim Keller book if you've never heard of her, maybe you have, uh, and read one uh, this summer. Um, So thank you for the privilege uh, and the opportunity to preach today, Clint. My name is Mark, and uh, I want to invite you to the Psalms. So this summer, we're going to be walking through several Psalms. So kids, is Psalms Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. Anybody know how many Psalms there are? 150. Anybody got a favorite Psalm? Anybody got one? Psalm 91. Got another one? (laughs) <laughs> 139, man, Psalm 23 is a real popular one. Um, so there's a lot of great psalms. And so this morning, I want to invite you because we're going to read through several this summer. And if you don't know this, uh, these have been put into like categories. Uh, many of them written by David, but a lot of other people. And so here's the five categories of psalms. And we're going to talk about it through today. So the first type is... We would call it a royalty psalm. These were ones, especially when the king sat on the throne. Uh, it was a psalm that would be read uh, in honor, kind of a historical window into Israel. Then there's psalms that are wisdom psalms, and they're exactly what it sounds like. These were to teach us how to focus on who God is and what he has done to have this eternal perspective uh, instead of just the short-term gain and to help us live lives. Then there's psalms of praise, of psalms that are written that express praise and exaltation towards God. But you'll also find psalms called laments. And these are psalms where the author is just pouring his heart out and sometimes about anguish or heartbrokenness, depression, sadness, injustice. And they bring their complaints to God, and there's many of those. And then there's psalms of thanksgiving, simply expressing thankfulness to God for who he is and what he has done. And so five different categories of psalms. So I want you today to go to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, it's one of my wife's favorites, so I'm going to start off with that one uh, this summer to kick us off. As you're turning to Psalm 34, I want us to know that there are so many things that have gone into shaping who we are and especially the choices that we make. We all have these things, our environments that we grew up in. Man, that shapes 
who we are. The opportunities we have that has shaped who we are. Our relationships, the family you grew up in, the friends that you have, all of those shape who we are. Even books that we consume or hobbies or entertainments, all the things that we bring in, those shape who we are. And even experiences. The schools we went to, uh, the things that you did, the careers you have, your education, these experiences shape who we are and also the choices that we make. But there are two factors that I believe influence our lives more than any other factor. These two factors shape who we are and especially influence the choices that we make. In fact, I experienced that just this morning. And here are the two factors. Fear and desire. What we desire and what we fear influences who we are and the choices that we make, especially the things that we fear the most and the things that we desire the most. Our lives are shaped by what we fear and what we desire. You know, thinking of fears and desires, some are good. You know, hopefully you have a fear of not getting ran over by a semi-truck so you don't run out across Broadway or across the loop. You have a fear, a healthy fear of waking up in the middle of the night and not wanting to step on a Lego. You know, we have things. That fears are put there as, as guardrails, as guides. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 tells us to fear the Lord. So there are right ways and right things to fear. And desires are the same thing. There are good things we should desire. Maybe you have a desire to work hard or to be reliable. Scripture would tell us to honor our father and mother. Hopefully we have a desire to be trustworthy people. So there are good things to desire, but there are bad things as well. And here's what I think is so interesting about this. Not only are our lives and who we are and the choices we make shaped by what we fear the most and what we desire the most, our desires influence our fears and our fears impact our desires. They cannot be separated. I'm going to show you in just a moment that our desires influence what we fear and our fears impact what we desire. So let's just take an example. Let's say, and I can use this because I know no one in here uh, has this uh, kind of desire, uh, the desire of control. I know you don't. Let's just say I do. Okay, I, I have this desire to be in control. And that can be a great thing. The Bible talks about it. Be self-controlled people. But it can also be unhealthy. This idea of desire for control or the fear of control. But watch how they are connected. If I have a fear or desire of being in control. And my desire grows and grows. Guess what also is going to grow with that desire? My fear of losing that control. So what happens is my fear gets bigger. Guess what? I begin acting in ways to gain more and more control. So the fear does not decrease with more control. It actually increases. The thing I desire, I want that, I need that. I have this desire for it. And if it gets threatened... Or it gets to be where it can be taken away. My fear of losing that increases. And then with more control, that fear gets even bigger and bigger. So here's the question 
I want us to think about today. How do we not fear wrongly and how do we not desire wrongly? And the great news is that is what David is going to show us in Psalm 34. But the answer is actually this. I'll give it to you right up front. How do we not fear wrongly? How do we not desire wrongly? It's actually to begin a journey. And I can't tell you exactly when, but along the way, there will come this moment that everything changes. So the journey begins with an invitation and it begins by tasting something. It's what he's going to show. So here's the background. Psalm 34. In most of your Bibles, you have this little uh, beginning, this little intro. And you'll see it there. It talks about David being before the king of Abdullam. So here's what has happened. It says, O David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So if you have a reference in your Bible, it's going to take you to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now you remember David? David was a shepherd boy. He grew up with these brothers. All of a sudden, the Philistines are fighting against Israel. He shows up to check on his brothers. He hears the insults of Goliath. And David ends up killing Goliath. That seems to me, that'd be a great time for maybe a psalm of thanksgiving or even a psalm of praise. But what happens is David's popularity begins to grow. People begin hearing about David. In fact, they even were singing songs where I think it goes that Saul killed, slayed thousands, but David killed ten thousands, and his popularity was growing, and Saul could not stand this. In fact, Saul's fears feed his desires, and his desires actually increase his fears. So he begins hunting down David, and David is running for his life. And guess where David goes? Of all places, he goes to Gath. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know, it seems okay. Well, guess where Goliath was from? Gath. He goes to the birthplace, the hometown of the giant that he killed. Doesn't seem like a great place to hide out, but he tries to. Well, the king gets word that David is there. David's placed in jail. And so what does he do? He pretends to be insane. He begins probably clawing at the walls and the door. It says the spit begins to roll down his beard. So the king says, we have enough crazies in this town. I've felt that before. So he says, get rid of him. Send him away. I don't need to deal with him. So David goes to the caves of Abdullam, where he is now hiding once again. And this is where he writes this psalm. So imagine this, that David... No place to hide other than a cave. No one he can trust and no one to help him. I imagine that would be terrifying. Yet in the middle of this fearful time, David writes this psalm. And I would think this would be a great time for a lament. Hey God, here's what's happened. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you interacting for me? What? This seems like a great time for a lament psalm. But notice how it begins in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. David writes a psalm of thanksgiving. How? I can't imagine, but he does. 
So let's break it down. Notice three things that David commits to. He is all alone in this cave. And he makes the first thing he commits to. He commits that I will bless the Lord. Meaning that he will pronounce God as holy. And notice how the scripture says, at all times. Meaning this, in every situation. Even if he is alone in a cave, hiding for his life, he says, I will bless the Lord. The second thing he commits to, he commits to praise. It says it will continuously be in my mouth. He is giving us this picture of audibly speaking praises out loud. And this is something I tell you, my wife has really led our family well in, is anytime she finds any of us complaining or griping, she will stop us and say, name three things you're thankful for. And there is just something when we direct our minds about having grateful hearts. And David says he will praise the Lord continually will be in my mouth. But the third thing he says, I will bless, I will praise, and I will boast in the Lord. And these are personal commitments because notice the language, I, my, my soul. This is a personal commitment that David makes. But then he invites others along. So here's what probably has happened. You've turned the page from Psalm 1 Samuel 21 to 1 Samuel 22, where he is met by his brothers, and it says his father's house joins him. So notice now the invitation. In verse 3, he says, Oh, (coughs) magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, you know what this word means, magnify. It means to make much of. And there's two ways you can do this. You see it? Even in school, there are two ways to magnify something. One is through a microscope where you take something that is small or tiny and it gets magnified to where it appears bigger than it actually is. But there's another way that we use magnification. It's with telescopes. It's taking something that is big and begin to look at it and to see it as it really is. And that's what David is calling us to, because God is already big. He can't be made any bigger, but he is calling us to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is, to make God big in our lives. And notice the invitation. He says, magnify him, make him as big as he is with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, deep down, don't you really want that? That no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what the circumstance might be, no matter what is happening, you could bless him, praise him, magnify him, and exalt him. I would hope that would want to be our desire, but isn't it difficult? And it's easy when things are going well, kids are behaving, there's plenty of money in the bank account, things are working out like you planned. But it isn't always easy that David is here and he shares how you can do this even if you're hiding alone in a cave. Notice what he's going to do. He's going to bring out two important things in the next three verses. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. 
This poor man, he cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all troubles. So David does two important things. The first thing David does is he remembers God's past actions. He remembers how God has delivered him in the past, and he takes time to stop and reflect on that. From Goliath, from being captured by Saul, not once but twice, from the Philistines and Gath, he remembers God's past actions. Even in the circumstances he is in, because it may not seem that way, he looks back and he remembers what God had done. But the second thing he does in the next couple of verses, he recalls several promises that were true for him. Because look at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So I believe the angel of the Lord here is actually a reference to the Lord himself. And notice the picture. He encamps around us. He encircles us, constantly watching over those who fear him. Because David's fears, I believe they are real. But he reminds himself of who is watching over him and protecting him. He reminds himself of the promises Then he does the same thing. After he personally does it, he invites those with him. And here it is, the key to this passage. Verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So it's an invitation to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And I think he is describing here a journey, a journey of tasting and seeing. In fact, the only way to truly experience this is this journey that we must, each and every one must take. That no one else can take this journey for you. You and I must taste for ourselves. And I think this is extremely important for those raised in the church. I was. There comes a point in your life where your faith must become your own and you must begin tasting and seeing for yourself. But you know, that's how taste really begins. You know where it really develops as a young child? It develops by those around you. And I've got a weird one. My family knows it, but every time growing up, or I do now, is uh, anytime Marla makes chili, I eat saltine crackers with a thin layer of mayo. With my chili. And I know you think that's strong or weird. But growing up, guess what? That's just how it was at my house. I didn't know any different. So that taste developed in me and now I still do it. But as you get older, you must be the one to take that journey for yourselves. That we have to begin to taste and see if the promise is true. That we must individually begin the journey of tasting and seeing is God good. I think sometimes the only way to really experience that and to really know is to go through some things that are absolutely seem impossible or painful that cause us to really take the journey to see, is God really good? So the invitation this morning is give God a chance to prove it. Because look at verse 9. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's making the proclamation, but we have to take that journey to see if it is true. And David took it. And in verse 9 and 10, notice what he discovered. When he began that journey, somewhere along the way, something changed. 
And he says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David experienced that there is a place, there's a time that you can come to believe that you lack nothing. That those who taste and see actually find that they lack nothing. Can you imagine what that would be like? To believe that you lack nothing. But to believe that we lack nothing, we must begin the journey. And it can be terrifying. But David tasted, and that is exactly what he found. He found that I don't lack anything. I can't imagine he doesn't have much. But he comes to believe that he lacks nothing. So then what does David do? He turns into this teaching and this wisdom section. And notice the language. He says, come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Speak peace and pursue it. But notice in verse 12, David is actually teaching by asking a question. And this is what he's asking. He says, hey, who in here desires life and many days to see good? He's asking who really wants to live? Who wants a life filled with joy and a fulfilling life as they're sitting in a cave? Now imagine every hand went up. Yes, that is what I want. I believe every Christian and probably everyone in this room would say, yes, that is what I want. So what is our biggest issue? What is our biggest hurdle? What is our biggest deliverance from being able to experience that question that David said. I believe it's what we talked about at the beginning. It's our biggest hindrance to this is our fears and our desires. That fearing rightly and rightly desiring only happens when we see God rightly. And David lays out those realities in verse 11 or verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Meaning those that seek to honor God, he says, God sees them and he hears them. In verse 16, the face of the Lord, though, is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, pretty straightforward, right? That those that don't do that, that, that seek their own honor, that seek their own glory, that do evil, seek to do harm with their tongues, he says. They spread deceit. That the Lord will remove the memory of them. But in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, notice the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Meaning, those that seek to hear the Lord or to honor the Lord, the Lord hears their cries, hears their prayers, he helps them and he delivers them from all trouble. But here's the word of caution. The journey of tasting and seeing if the Lord is good, it doesn't mean the absence of pain or troubles or sorrows. 
The journey of tasting and seeing if the Lord is good, it doesn't mean that we get everything that we want. But notice what David says next. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So he acknowledges it. But the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So he says, many are the afflictions, the troubles, the sorrow, the pain. He says, this will happen. But following God, honoring him, trying to do the right thing, doesn't mean we'll never experience afflictions or get everything we want. But it does mean something far better. He says, the Lord delivers them out of all of them. Meaning, yes, we will experience afflictions. This journey of tasting and seeing if the Lord is good will be full of them. But the promise is that they will not destroy us. That that is the promise. Because notice the contrast in verse 21. But the affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So what I want to do, I want to circle back to where we begin with this idea of fears and desires. Because if you spend some time going through these verses, here's what you would notice. He's going to take the idea of desires and talk about it six times. Two in the positive and four in the negative. So, rightly desiring, he tells us, produces a full and a good life. They bless God, they magnify him, but wrongly desiring, he shows us, it is harmful and it is evil. They spread deceit and lies. But here's what I believe about us. I don't think anybody in here, if I surveyed everybody, said, you know what? You would say, you know, I really desire to do evil. Man, I really want to be a person that has destructive things all throughout their life. I don't think that's anything we, any of us would admit. So perhaps that's not our greatest danger of wanting to do wicked or wanting, desiring evil things. But perhaps there is another danger. That the danger might be taking what is good, but then desiring it in such a way that it becomes an ultimate desire. I think we can all have them. It's a danger we would all face that we could take something that's good and right and have a desire for it, but we make it an ultimate thing where we would say, unless I have this, I cannot be happy. Or we get angry. We become controlling and we would do whatever necessary to get the thing that we want. That we can take a good thing and actually make it an ultimate thing. So the journey to taste and see, is the Lord good? I believe this. It starts with a willingness to unclench our grip on those things that we say, I have to have this in order to be happy. I believe David was stripped of all that. A willingness to lay down that desire and trust God's goodness whether we get it fulfilled or not. That to taste and see that the Lord is good is actually to begin a journey to see if that is true, to give him a chance to prove it. But then you know the thing you notice if you walk down through all these verses. He talks about fear nine times. Three in the positive and six in the negative. 
But David does three things with fear. He fights back against fear with three things. And here they are. In verse 1 and 3, do you notice what David does? He fights his fears with praise. That David takes the thing that he is fearing and he overwhelms it with praise. He says, I will praise, I will boast, I will magnify. So the journey to taste and see if the Lord is good is to overwhelm our fears with praise. Even when it's hard to believe it. But here's the second thing he does. In verses 4 and 6, he fights his fears with remembrance. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. So the journey to taste and to see that the Lord is good is when we're wrestling with fears, we recall God's past actions and his faithfulness. But then David does a third thing. In verse 23, he fights fears with an eternal perspective. And for me, I think this is the one that seems like the hardest. And it's so easy for me to get wrapped up in the here now, the immediate things I can see. But in verse 22, he says, The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David knows affliction. He knows pain. He knows sorrows. And you know what? His greatest are still ahead of him. But he takes his fears and he holds them up against an eternal perspective. Because ultimately David knows his sins means he deserves death. But astonishingly, God offers something else instead. He offers redemption. It says refuge and even no condemnation. So David began that journey, and somewhere along the way, everything changed. So to taste and see that the Lord is good is to remind ourselves of where we take refuge. So how do we not fear wrongly? How do we not desire wrongly? The answer is to actually begin a journey. And I can't tell you exactly when, but somewhere along the way, everything changes. And it can be a scary journey. It's giving up control. It's allowing God to set things in action that you're trusting his plan is best. It's fighting against all the things in the conversations that we have in our head and allowing God to prove if he truly is good. So the journey to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that is the challenge this morning. Hopefully you have begun that journey. If you haven't, today would be a great day to do that. To give God a chance to prove that he is really good. But then we go through life and we have all had these seasons where, man, it's easy to shout his praises. But we've also had those moments, and maybe you're in those ones now where it's hard. But then those moments, we take these psalms, we take the truth that is here, and we begin that journey again to taste and to see that the Lord is good, to give him a chance to prove it. So, Lord, or church, will you pray with me? Now, Father, I would think everyone in here that we would desire life, that we would long to see it good and according to your desires and standards. Lord, you created us and you have given us these lives even today. 
Lord, I believe you're inviting all of us, no matter where we are on the journey. Maybe we're just beginning. Maybe we're somewhere along the middle, or maybe we're coming to the end of that. But, Lord, we are all in this journey that you've invited us to taste and to see that you are good. Lord, I repent of fearing wrongly, of even desiring wrongly. But Lord, would you shape us with a fear of you as the scriptures tell us? Would you take our, help us to see our ultimate refuges in you and not in the things of this world and ultimate satisfaction can never be found on this side of glory. So Lord, would you lead us along this journey as we seek your goodness? And Lord, would you prove it big? Lord, I ask all this in the only name I know now. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.